Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Are we going to address the Alex in the room? Yes. Welcome back. It is me. <laughs> it's been no time, really. Just one week, <laughs> it's right? Been one week. Yeah. But so, an eternity. So what? Um, what's up? <laughs> like nothing new. <laughs> you know, I had one week. Should I give an, an extra good thing this week? I don't know. Yeah, I guess you just couldn't resist. No, I had to come back. Yeah, I, I come back for the story. This is uh, what's up, guys. So Alex is going to be here sometimes. And that's that's great. You know, I kind of I kind of felt like this is how it was going to go down. That sometimes you were going to want to hop back in when you could. Yeah, I wasn't going to just go cold turkey. Yeah. And I'm glad you did. I mean, this is uh, definitely an interesting one. So yeah, yeah, I'm going warm turkey. You're going warm turkey. Sure. And, and you know, I'm <laughs> sure. Good, good joke. Would you like a pat on the back? No, I think I need to go already. Yeah, I think, I think, actually, I think, I think I need to go back. I think your time is gone. I think you need more time away. You're in timeout. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm on sabbatical. Sure. <laughs> sure. So here's what's up, guys. Sometimes it's going to be me, and sometimes Alex is going to be here. And, you know, sometimes maybe there'll be someone else. I don't know. Hell, I make the rules, and I, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm hmm. That's right. The world is my oyster. That's right. And we love that. So I'm no longer a co-host. I'm now esteemed member of the public. Well, you know, we don't, gotta, we don't have to we don't have to put labels. Hey, I'll put labels. I make the rules about me. <laughs> oh. My labels. Shit. All right. We don't got to get so aggressive about it. <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> well, anyway, as this episode is out right now, our bonus episode is up on Patreon. I will be talking about the Bone Breaker Killer. And the description of that story is on July 29th, 1995, 17-year-old Joseph Clark abducted 13-year-old Thaddeus Phillips from his home in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Later known as the Bone Breaker Killer, Clark kidnapped fellow teen boys and systematically broke their bones. This one is definitely intense, but if you are interested in hearing that story, head over to patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast and get access to all of our bonus episodes, because we got a lot. But anyway, that being said, I've got quite the story for you. So shall we just jump right in? Jump in, please. Okay. Today, I'm going to be telling you about mental hospitals, primarily in the United States, in the 18 and 1900s. They're old. Yeah, this was not a fun time to be in a mental institution, and we can't really be using our favorite word, which is crazy, because that would be insulting. Oh. Not crazy. Mm. Yeah. Right. That's the whole point sure. is it's insulting to use that word to refer to people in mental institutions. Right. But would you say that it is crazy to do that? Is that insulting? Maybe. Anyway, let's get into the story. <laughs> In the 1900s, psychiatric hospitals were known as lunatic asylums or insane asylums, and I can say with certainty that that is insulting. And officials there would lock up patients against their will, despite having few ideas about how to properly treat their problems. Patients at psychiatric hospitals in the United States faced inhumane treatment that today would be regarded as nothing short of torture. 
What was so scary about psychiatric hospitals at this time was not everyone chose to enter on their own free will. In fact, up until the 1960s, the majority of patients in the U.S. mental health facilities were admitted involuntarily. Thankfully, that number is a lot different today. 71% of patients in psychiatric institutions today are there voluntarily. But back then, it took almost nothing for someone to be admitted against their will. One of the biggest contributing factors were the laws at the time that allowed families to commit their relatives with little to no supporting evidence at all. One major example of this is the story of Elizabeth Packard. Elizabeth Packard was born in Ware, Massachusetts to Samuel and Lucy Ware. Samuel was a congregational minister in the Connecticut Valley of the Ware Congregational Church from 1810 to 1826. She was able to get a quality education at the Amherst Female Seminary, where she studied French, algebra, and the new classics thanks to the adequate wealth of her parents, leading her to become a well-educated and middle-class woman. Still, in 1835, at age 19, she was diagnosed with quote-unquote brain fever, an outdated term for which there is no modern equivalent. When the Ware's family physician failed to help Elizabeth, her father decided on hospitalization. Wait, so can you describe what made them think she had... Brain fever? Brain fever? Um, no, <laughs> because there was no modern equivalent i guess they well, were like i mean what spooky. symptoms quote unquote was she having like what was the doctor trying to stop i'm seeing headache chills and nausea but i'm also seeing illness brought about by severe emotional upset so i'm guessing she was just a teenager and she was emotional and they were like she's got brain fever oh dear yeah <laughs> it's what 1810 1835 yeah. Right. The closest hospital was Worcester State Hospital with Dr. Samuel Woodward at the helm, and he was highly regarded for patient care. Thus, Elizabeth's father brought her to the hospital and wrote on the admission papers that she suffered from mental labor from her occupation as a teacher. The length of her stay, more than anything else, shows she was physically ill, not mentally ill, and she stayed just six weeks. So <laughs> she was just tired from being a teacher <laughs> <laughs> so that's wait what did you say what was the term like labor mental labor mental like she's giving mental birth or she was just tired she literally was just tired from being a teacher that i mean that's fair yeah i mean what could you know what grade she was teaching i have no idea but i guess it doesn't matter isn't that kind of funny that's hilarious that you could go away for six weeks because you can't deal with these fucking kids. Right. And this isn't even like the crazy part of the story. So at the insistence of her parents, Elizabeth Parsons Ware married Calvinist minister Theophilus Packard. Theophilus was 14 years her senior and said to be cold and domineering. The couple had six children and lived in western Massachusetts until September 1854. Beginning in 1857, after having lived in Ohio and Iowa for short periods, the family moved to Illinois and appeared to have a peaceful and uneventful marriage. Wait, why do you need to specify peaceful? Because everything was fine up until 
Theophilus held quite decisive religious beliefs, and after many years of marriage, Elizabeth Packard outwardly questioned her husband's beliefs and began expressing opinions that were contrary to his. <gasps> Gasp! Clutch your pearls, everyone. While the main subject of their dispute was religion, the couple also disagreed on child-rearing, family finances, and the issue of slavery with Elizabeth defending John Brown, who was an American abolitionist leader. So Elizabeth was like, yeah, I'm not down with slavery. And Theophilus was like, that's not chill with me. So all of Elizabeth's opinions embarrassed Theophilus. So when Illinois opened its first hospital for the mentally ill in 1851, the state legislator passed a law that within two years of its passage was amended to require a public hearing before a person could be committed against his or her will. But there was one exception. A husband could have his wife committed without either a public hearing or her consent. So in 1860, Theophilus Packard judged that his wife was, quote-unquote, slightly insane, a condition he attributed to her excessive application of body and mind, in his words. What? He didn't like that she had opposing opinions. So he arranged for a doctor, J.W. Brown, to speak with her, and the doctor pretended to be a sewing machine salesman. During their conversation, Elizabeth complained of her husband's domination and his accusations to others that she was insane. And Brown reported this conversation to Theophilus, along with the observation that Mrs. Packard, quote-unquote, exhibited a great dislike to me, meaning she didn't like him either. So the doctor sided with her husband, diagnosing her as insane, and sent her to the Illinois State Hospital for the Insane, in Jacksonville. His reasons included her refusal to shake his hand and the fact that she was above the age of 40. So because she was... Wait, were those the main reasons? Mm-hmm. So Whoa. the doctor's reasons were she's over the age of 40 and she wouldn't shake his hand. That's why she's insane. And then she just got her freedom taken away? Yes, at the time, Illinois did not require proof of mental illness for a husband to put his wife away. So she learned of this decision on June 18, 1860, when the county sheriff arrived at the Packard home to take her into custody. Elizabeth Packard would then spend the next three years at the Jacksonville Insane Asylum. Oh my god, mm -hmm. three years? Yes. She was regularly questioned by her doctors, but refused to agree that she was insane or to change her religious views. Because this all started because her husband was extremely religious and she refused to follow his beliefs. She was like, I don't agree with your religious beliefs. And he was like, um, okay, so you're insane. In June of 1863, due in part to pressure from her son who had recently turned 21, who wanted her release, the doctors declared that she was incurable and discharged her. So upon her discharge, Theophilus locked her in the nursery of their home and nailed the windows shut. So she was discharged from this insane asylum and brought home, but then her husband locked her in the nursery and nailed the window shut. Oh my god. So she just... A prisoner. Yes. Forever a prisoner. At this point, yes. Elizabeth managed to drop a letter complaining of this treatment out the window, which was delivered to her friend, 
Sarah Haslett, and Sarah Haslett in turn delivered the letter to Judge Charles Starr, who then called Theophilus and Elizabeth to his chambers to discuss the matter. And after being presented with Theophilus's evidence, Judge Starr scheduled a jury trial to allow a legal determination of Elizabeth's sanity to take place. Oh my god. So he was like, okay, if you think she's so crazy, then we're gonna have a jury decide. Isn't that insane? This is so they're gonna have a court case. Yes. So then wow. that brought on Packard v. Packard. That's kind of hilarious. So <laughs> this lasted five days. Theophilus's lawyers produced witnesses from his family who testified that Elizabeth had argued with her husband and tried to withdraw from his congregation. That was their proof. These witnesses concurred with Theophilus that this was a sign of insanity. And they had the record from the Illinois State Hospital stating that Mrs. Packard's condition was incurable. So that was also entered into the court record because her son like got her out of the insane asylum and they were like, she's incurable. So the, they presented that to the court. <laughs> so Elizabeth's lawyers, Stephen Moore and John W. Orr, responded by calling witnesses from the neighborhood that knew the Packards but were not members of Theophilus's church. These witnesses testified they never saw Elizabeth exhibit any signs of insanity while discussing religion or otherwise. The final witness was Dr. Duncanson, who was both a physician and a theologian. Dr. Duncanson had interviewed Elizabeth and he testified that while not necessarily in agreement with all of her religious beliefs, she was sane in his view, arguing that, quote, I do not call people insane because they differ with me. I pronounce her a sane woman and wish we had a nation of such women. Amen. So the jury took only seven minutes to find in Elizabeth's favor. She was legally declared sane. And Judge Charles Starr said that she should not be confined. So I guess she's no longer going to be confined in her nursery by her own husband, which is insane that it needed to even be decided by a court right. anyway. But imagine that drive home. Right. Okay. So <laughs> when Elizabeth Packard returned to the home she shared with her husband, she found that the night before her release, her husband had rented their home to another family, sold the furniture, and taken her money, her notes, her wardrobe, her children, and had left the state. So she went back by herself, or she went back with him? No, she went back by herself, and she found out that he had literally left with everything she had ever owned, and with her children, and she had nothing to her name, because she was a woman in 1860, and she had nothing. Wow. Yeah, so she appealed to the Supreme Courts of both Illinois and Massachusetts to where her husband had taken her children, but she had no legal recourse. As a married woman in these states at the time, she had no legal rights to their property or her children. After separating from her husband, Packard founded the Anti-Insane Asylum Society and campaigned for divorced women to retain custody of their children. She also went on to author a number of books, including The Prisoner's Hidden Life or Insane Asylums Unveiled. Though Packard Society never achieved national distinction, it became the forerunner for other ex-patient groups that have persistently arisen to help members who have received care at mental hospitals. So that's Elizabeth Packard's story. That's so crazy. I mean, when you were telling me the law that any family member can have another relative 
committed against their will. Mm -hmm. I just thought if that were true right now, you don't think that thought would have crossed your mind for any of your family members at any point? Yeah. Families hate each other all the time. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's just seems crazy. And then they made an exception to commit your wife uh, without a handshake and old age. Like, this is crazy yeah because she was over the age of 40 she the doctor was like yep she's insane but they didn't even need proof i'm gonna go on to talk about this but you literally did not need proof if you had money you could just say yeah i'm just gonna send them and i'll pay for their their entrance you didn't even need a doctor he just went the doctor route i guess it maybe was better that she was away from him no i don't think so i mean like yeah he was a bad man obviously but like I don't think it's better that she had to spend three years in a psychiatric no, 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 hospital. I just mean after that. Oh yeah, maybe, but also he had her children, and she had no, I know. no access to them. She had nothing to her name. Like she was a woman in 1860, and she didn't have anything. She obviously wrote, went on to write books, and like was fine, I guess. But it's awful. Yeah, it's it's really bad. fucked up. But this is truly the beginning of the story. So let's just keep going. Another example of a family member just sending their person away was in 1883. Henry Frazier was sent to an asylum in New Orleans because his mother called him uncontrollable, saying he played himself to complete exhaustion. So he was a young boy who, I guess, went through puberty. Liked himself a play. Is what it sounds (laughs) like. What was the exact phrase? Played himself to exhaustion? That's what it says, yeah. Well, isn't that kind of what you do? You, like, play until you can't anymore? Oh, I think he, she means masturbation. Oh. (laughs) That is so pure of you. I was like, oh, he's just running around. He's kicking a soccer ball. Oh, he's just a little Relax. He's just playing around. He's just cranking his wang. (laughs) You know? That's hilarious. Played himself to exhaustion. Anyway, moving on. Families had any reason at <laughs> families who had any reason at all to send away a relative could do it. But what made matters even worse was perverse financial incentives for the hospitals themselves. So hospitals wanted and needed more patients to keep their doors open, which meant if a family wanted to, They could literally just buy a family member's confinement if they didn't want to deal with them. If they had the funds, bye-bye, Johnny. You know, it was one of those. (laughs) One of those. There were a very wide range of people being housed in psychiatric hospitals at the time. You could find anyone from someone dealing with actual mental illnesses, criminals, people with epilepsy, drug addicts, elderly people with dementia or just regular elderly people who families didn't want to take care of anymore, children with learning disabilities, or women. My point is, there were so many people at these facilities that shouldn't have been there. Regular doctors would even send their patients to mental hospitals because for a time, it was believed that different conditions could cause insanity. A man named William Byrne was institutionalized after he fell from a horse and landed on his head, which doctors said caused a softening of the brain. A man named Henry Schreiber's diagnosis was congenital idiocy. Doctors wrote he had been an idiot from birth, (laughs) which means you would not have been safe. (laughs) 
I love that phrase. Congenital idiocy. Mm-hmm. You would have That's been, hilarious. You would have yeah, been in danger. I would have been gone long ago. <laughs> I would have been sent away, too, at some point. I mean, yeah. hey, if I was a woman in 1830-something, or if I was a woman in during the time of the witch trials, I mean, forget it. Mm-hmm. I, I would yeah, have been a, spooky. I would have been a goner. In the case of a woman named Jane DePasse, she apparently drank too much whiskey, and doctors concluded the cause for her insanity was chronic alcoholism. So you could have just been an alcoholic and sent to an institution. I mean, she's got great taste, though. Sure. Why not? Reformers in the 19th century encouraged states to build insane asylums, and by the 1870s, most states had built at least one asylum using tax dollars to treat those labeled insane. These facilities a lot of the time were very misleading because, like I mentioned earlier, these hospitals needed patients to stay open, so they looked really nice from the outside. Well, some of them, at least. Reformers at the time argued that mental illness could be treated with rest and recuperation, which drove the creation of peaceful, manicured estates. These often included gardens and lawns where patients could walk around architecturally beautiful structures. Asylum tourism even became a popular pursuit by the late 19th century. Guidebooks even recommended visits to asylums, including the Bloomingdale Asylum for the Insane, which, according to one guide, had one of the most extensive and beautiful views of any in the vicinity of the city. But there was a very big difference between the private asylums that the wealthy could afford to send their family members to and the conditions at the public institutions that the poor were sent to. With the dawn of the industrial age and its accompanying growth of the crowded cities, many people feared that people with mental illnesses were a threat to public safety. The conditions in the majority of these facilities were horrifying. Many of these asylums were extremely overcrowded and understaffed. They'd shove as many patients as they could into one small room with bars on the windows and lock them inside. There were really terrible, torturous things going on in these mental hospitals that we'll get into shortly, but in some cases, the overcrowdedness was enough to get patients killed. At Overbrook Insane Asylum in New Jersey, they were so severely understaffed and overcrowded that 24 patients froze to death in their own beds, and more than 150 went missing and were never found. 150? Went missing, yeah. At one facility? Yes, and were never found. Dude, that is so many people. I know. To just lose? Uh-huh. And 24 people froze to death in their beds. How? They were so overcrowded and understaffed. But do they not have windows or heating? No. They just were shoved into a room and forgotten about. And it was probably winter. Wow. It's awful. It's, yeah. It's just scary. In many facilities, the food was rancid and rotten and patients were treated like criminals, or really worse than criminals, because they would be subjected to quote-unquote treatments for their mental illnesses. The earliest treatments for mental illness were, to put it mildly, absolutely brutal. In the early 19th century, asylums in England used a wheel to spin patients at high speeds. Other treatments still used at the end of the 19th century included harnessing patients and swinging them or branding a patient with hot irons in an attempt to bring them to their senses. Asylums also relied heavily on mechanical restraints, using straitjackets, 
waistcoats and leather wristlets, sometimes for hours or days at a time. Doctors claimed restraints kept patients safe, but as asylums filled up, the use of physical restraint was more of a means of controlling overcrowded institutions. At a state hospital in Kansas, there was allegedly a patient who was strapped down to a bed for so long that his skin began to grow over the restraints. Oh my god, that's years. I mean, I couldn't say how long that is, but it's a very long time. It's just horrifying to think about. I know that much. Although Benjamin Rush, who's considered to be the father of American psychiatry, was the first to abandon the theory that demon possession caused insanity, this didn't stop him from using the old humoral treatments on asylum patients to cure their minds. Instead of letting out the demons as the treatment was originally intended, he thought the body's fluids were out of balance. He purged, blistered, vomited, and bled his patients. Similarly, Henry Cotton, superintendent at New Jersey's Trenton State Hospital from 1907 to 1930, thought infected parts of the body led to mental illness. He focused on pulling rotten teeth, which he thought caused madness-inducing infections. When that didn't work, presumably because contaminated saliva still made its way into the body, Cotton began removing tonsils as well. And then he took it a step further, removing parts of stomachs, small intestines, appendixes, gallbladders, thyroid glands, and parts of the colon, any place where it was thought infection could linger. Unsurprisingly, this did not prove to be a reliable cure, and it carried a very high mortality rate. Yeah, no, no shit. Yeah, so these doctors were literally just taken apart humans. And they were like, I don't even know if they had, like, did they have anesthesia back then? I forget when it was invented, but... They had some kind of drugs, I think. Jesus. Alcohol, at the very least. Topeka State Hospital in Kansas performed somewhere around 54 castrations on their patients over a seven-year period. In 1913, the Kansas legislature passed the first sterilization law in the state. The 1913 law was directed at, and these are not my words, habitual criminals, idiots, epileptics, imbeciles, and insane. And as if this is any kind of stretch, the patients there were also victims of other various forms of abuse. One thing that made these treatments and the abuse there so horrifying was that it was later revealed that many of the identities, illnesses, or literally any general information about these patients was unknown because the hospital didn't have any proper paperwork to keep track of any of them. So the testing they were doing, the castrations, the abuses, the everything was just done on, I guess, whoever. Yeah, they have no idea. Yeah. And Topeka State Hospital was chosen for closing and went out of business in 1997. Whoa, 97. Yeah, it's pretty late, right? That's a long time. I know. By the 1930s, doctors began to experiment with new, troubling methods of treating mental illness, which included lobotomies and shock therapies. In 1935, Portuguese neurologist Agus Moniz believed that patients with obsessive behavior were suffering from fixed circuits in the brain. He believed that he had found a solution, the frontal lobotomy. Surgeons would drill a pair of holes into the skull, either at the side or the top, and push a sharp instrument, a lecutome, into the brain. 
The surgeon would then sweep this from side to side to cut the connections between the frontal lobe and the rest of the brain. Moniz, who was affected by gout and could not use his hands to perform the surgery, enlisted the help of Portuguese surgeon Pedro Almeida Lima, and the surgery consisted of drilling two holes in the patient's head, like I said, and injecting pure ethyl alcohol into the prefrontal cortex. Oh my god. This surgeon literally couldn't even perform surgery. He was like, oh, you do it. Like, he just, he's like, how hard could it be? You Dude. just stick a... And then, yeah, pour booze in their head. Yeah, you just stick a sharp object into these people's brains and then sweep it around and then pour alcohol inside, and that'll be fine, right? Yeah. Moniz reported dramatic improvements for his first 20 patients. The operation was seized on with enthusiasm by the American neurologist Walter Freeman, who then brought the procedure to the States, performing the first lobotomy in the U.S. in 1936. Well, here, here's the crazy part. What if it worked? Well, you know, it depends on your definition of worked. Like if this actually would have been a cure, like I guess they didn't know that at the time. Right. And even the logic somewhat makes sense. Like it wasn't like it was out of nowhere. Yeah. It does sound like sitting here now sounds insane. Yes. But this is in a medical journal. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's very scary to think about. It's just crazy how legitimate it was. Mm-hmm. No, it, it, and they did it a lot. They did a lot of lobotomies. And and once they brought it to the U.S., it spread all over the globe. Um, its intended effect was to reduce tension or agitation. And many early patients did exhibit those changes. However, many also showed other effects, such as apathy, passivity, lack of initiative, poor ability to concentrate and a general decreased depth and intensity of their emotional response to life. And it was recognized that this was accomplished at the expense of a person's personality and intellect. So some people did die from getting a lobotomy. Like that was something that did, that did happen. But some people did live. And if you survived a lobotomy, then you were basically reduced to like, a, a depressed ch- shell. Yeah, you were basically like a child version of yourself, Oof. but like not even really. Like you did not, you were not yourself anymore. Wow. How could they have claimed that they had success with 20 patients then? Because they were saying like, oh, this patient was filled with rage and they were so hyperactive and they were so obsessive and whatever and now look at them they're you know they're not hyperfixating they're not so obsessive they're not aggressive they're just like sitting and staring so we cured them but really they were empty wow yeah walter freeman believed the surgery would be unavailable to those he saw as needing it most patients in state mental hospitals that had no operating rooms surgeons or anesthesia and limited budgets So because of that, he wanted to simplify the procedure so that it could be carried out by psychiatrists in psychiatric hospitals. At some point, Freeman thought of approaching the frontal lobe through the eye sockets instead of through drilled holes in the skull. Oh, dude. In 1945, he took an ice pick from his own kitchen and began testing the idea on grapefruit and cadavers. This new transorbital lobotomy involved lifting the upper eyelid and placing no, the no 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 so sorry oh no so sorry no 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 
and placing the point of a thin surgical instrument, often called an orbitoclast or a lecotome, under the eyelid and against the top of the eye socket, a mallet was used to drive the orbitoclast through the thin layer of bone and into the brain along the plane of the bridge of the nose. It was then moved around in the brain, and all the cuts were designed to transect the white fibrous matter connecting the cortical tissue of the prefrontal cortex to the thalamus. The orbitoclast was then withdrawn and the procedure repeated on the other side. I want to crawl inside of myself and die. That is so uncomfortable to listen to, and I've been trying to hide my face for the past 30 seconds. That is so gross, Mm -hmm. and I have such a visceral reaction to it. There's nothing much more uncomfortable I can imagine than something going into my eye. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. I'm pretty sure last episode, I literally used the phrase, I want to crawl inside of myself. So love that. That's how it makes me feel. Yeah, no, I agree. Walter Freeman coined the term surgically induced childhood and used it constantly to refer to the results of lobotomy. The operation left people with an quote-unquote infantile personality. He described one 29-year-old woman following a lobotomy as a quote, smiling, lazy, and satisfactory patient with the personality of an oyster who could not remember Freeman's name and endlessly poured coffee from an empty pot. When her parents had difficulty dealing with her behavior, Freeman advised a system of rewards using ice cream as a reward and her punishment were smacks. So she was, like, basically a child after a lobotomy. That's so devastating. And then he's just going to keep doing it. It's just crazy to me that you wouldn't realize what you're doing. Yeah. In the United States, approximately 40,000 people were lobotomized. And in England, 17,000 lobotomies were performed. According to one estimate, in the Nordic countries of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, a combined figure of approximately 9,300 lobotomies were performed. In Japan, the majority of lobotomies were performed on children with behavioral problems, which is even worse. So, hate that. The practice gradually fell out of favor beginning in the mid-1950s when antipsychotics, antidepressants, and other medications that were much more effective in treating and alleviating the distress of mentally disturbed patients came into use. By the late 1970s, the practice of lobotomy had generally ceased, although it continued as late as 1980 in France. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So people in the late 1970s were still getting lobotomized. And as late as 1980s in France. Yeah. Wow. But one of the most infamous treatments for mental illness includes electroconvulsive shock therapy. Early asylum keepers recognized that the symptoms of a of psychotic patients who also suffered from epilepsy seemed to improve after having a seizure. The Portuguese psychiatrist Ladzilas Maduna began experimenting with different ways to induce seizures and in 1934 discovered that, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, but metrazol, a stimulant drug, produced seizures if given in high enough doses. So they were giving chemical seizure therapy where they would basically just inject a potentially toxic substance into the body at a very high dose and it would give you a seizure and it was very unpleasant. By many reports, patients experienced a feeling of terror after taking the drug just before the seizure started. 
a Cleveland psychiatrist who was active then once reported that doctors and nurses used to chase their patients around the room to get them to take the drug. And it was gradually phased out because some patients died because of it. Which is when electroconvulsive therapy began, or ECT, which is still used today actually. Electroconvulsive therapy works by inducing seizure activity via electricity in the frontal lobes of the brain. The treatment itself lasts only several minutes, and, it, and a usual course of ECT involves treatment two or three times a week for a few weeks, followed by maintenance therapy on an outpatient basis. That's how people are treated today with ECT. Wait, so people still get shock therapy today? Yeah. And exactly. it works? Mm-hmm. It works? It does, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. For what? For, like, depression, and um, I think it's for maybe schizophrenia. There's there's a couple different things that it's used for. Okay. So this is why I kind of brought up the point that crazy ideas like this sometimes work. Yeah. Like, hey, let's just shock the brain. Is not unsimilar from a lot of these ideas, yet it works. Yeah, it's like a trial and error kind of thing. I know, but it's just, I, I can't believe it. So so if I'm sad, I just need to get a little shock. Well, it's maybe not that simple. Let's not, let's not put that <laughs> message out there. But many depictions of ECT in film and television have portrayed the therapy as an abusive form of control. Most famous is the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, in which an unruly patient is subjected to the procedure as a punishment. There is no question that ECT was benefiting patients in some cases, but there is also a lot of evidence from that period showing that ECT was used in mental hospitals to control difficult patients and to maintain order on wards. ECT was also physically dangerous when first developed. Current practice, known as modified ECT, uses muscle relaxants to avoid the physical dangers of a seizure and anesthesia to avoid pain from the electricity. These modifications were learned early, but it took a while for them to become standard practice. At that time, ECT was also used as a quote-unquote treatment for homosexuality, then considered by psychiatrists to be an illness which was traumatizing because just like you can't pray the gay away, you also can't shock it away. In the 1960s, psychiatrist Thomas Saz spearheaded what came to be known as the anti-psychiatry movement, which attacked psychiatry on multiple fronts, including the practice of ECT. It was viewed as inhumane and torturous, and ECT fell out of favor in 1960 and 1970s, but it made a resurgence in the 1980s. Today, it is a widely accepted treatment for serious mental disorders and is taught and practiced at hospitals throughout the world. It is estimated that one million people receive ECT annually. I'm still kind of shocked. Uh, okay. Hey, hey. Yeah. But we're not talking about today. We're talking about the 1900s. So everything that was happening in mental hospitals during that time was just like, let's do this insane experiment and see what happens with little to no regard for these people's lives. By the early 20th century, many doctors in mental hospitals were intentionally infecting people with malaria. It was believed that malaria may be a cure for syphilis because at the time it was incurable since there was no antibiotics until 1928 when penicillin was discovered. So in, in 1900 at Oregon State Hospital, doctors used what was called malarial treatment for people newly infected with the disease. 
doctors who used the treatment, first advocated by Dr. Julius Wagner Yareg, these these His names, names are, are rough. Yes. Intentionally injected malarial germs into a patient's bloodstream based on the theory that malarial fever could kill syphilis. Research showed that approximately half of these patients saw a reduction of syphilis symptoms after the malaria infection, which sounds pretty promising. However, the same research showed that at least 15% died from the treatment, which is far less promising, although it didn't stop them from using it. At Waverly Hills Sanatorium, doctors attempted to treat patients with tuberculosis by removing ribs and muscles, or even at times by placing balloons in their lungs to help them expand more, which of course killed people. Independent researchers crunched some numbers and believe that over the 50 years that this hospital was open, possibly 8,212 people died there because of like the experiments they did on people. This is crazy. I mean, I guess this is before any ethics laws or guardrails regulation. Yeah. In 1887, journalist Elizabeth Cochran agreed to go undercover in the Women's Lunatic Asylum, a mental institution on Blackwell's Island in New York City, to record the conditions inside. And under the pen name Nellie Bly, she wrote and published 10 Days in a Madhouse where she reported on what really went on inside one of these facilities. And this is actually a really cool story. So after working for the Pittsburgh Dispatch for a few years, Bly got the dangerous assignment to infiltrate an infamous mental asylum for Joseph Pulitzer himself. After she blustered her way into his office, can you tell I copied and pasted that she (laughs) she promised pulitzer she could deliver a major story and impressed by her moxie he gave her a whopper of an assignment to go undercover at the asylum with no guidance even on how to gain entry never mind how to get out in her first piece for a major metropolitan daily in late september 1887 bly threw herself into the role of a deranged woman to get committed and practiced looking insane in front of a mirror she then checked herself into a working class boarding house hoping to frighten the other boarders so much that they would kick her out using the name nelly brown she pretended she was from cuba and ranted that she was searching for missing trunks Her ruse worked, and the police were called. She had a hearing at a New York City court where a judge ordered her to Blackwell's Island, which at that time held a poorhouse, a smallpox hospital, a prison, and an insane asylum. What a mixture of facilities. It was that easy to get sent there. This was a very brave thing to do, because she let herself be committed to an insane asylum with no guarantee that she would be able to get out. Upon getting inside, Nellie Bly was immediately stripped down, subjected to humiliating tests, and fed rancid butter on one piece of bread that had a spider in it, so she didn't eat it. And every meal after, she was served spoiled food. The building was so freezing that the patients were blue with cold, and she was forced to take an ice-cold bath with dirty brown water. They did this by dumping buckets of water on her head to the point where she felt like she was drowning, and then dry her off with an extremely coarse towel that she had to share with 45 other patients. Oh, God. She said, quote, I think I experienced the sensation of a drowning person as they dragged me gasping, shivering, and quaking from the tub. 
For once, I did look insane. They were then given threadbare dresses with poorly fitted undergarments after these frigid baths. She said, quote, take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up and make her sit from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. on straight back benches. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her bad food and harsh treatment and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. Bly made a point of talking to as many women as she could. Among the sane ones, she found that many were immigrants who didn't understand English and seemed to have been mistakenly committed to the island. Others were just poor and thought they were going to a poorhouse, not an insane asylum. Isn't that fucked up? It was literally just women who didn't speak English or were poor. <sighs> so unfortunate. And then, I mean, this is just inhumane. Yes. Oh my god. Have you heard Everything. the rest of the episode? I know. <laughs> Are you shocked? well I, you're like I mean, this yeah. is cr- this is fucked up well yeah i'm like king it's the end of the episode okay i mean you know no it is it's really messed it's st- up <laughs> it's still fucked up and i'm still surprised yeah no this is yeah it's real like this is what actually was happening there a woman told bly for crying the nurses beat me with a broom handle and jumped on me they then tied my hands and feet throwing a sheet over my head, twisted it tightly around my throat so I could not scream, and thus put me in a bathtub filled with cold water. They held me under until I gave up every hope and became senseless. Hydrotherapy proved to be a popular technique. Warm, or more commonly cold water, allegedly reduced agitation, particularly for those experiencing manic episodes. People were either submerged in a bath for hours at a time, mummified in a wrapped pack, or sprayed with shockingly cold water in showers. So this was a tactic by nurses, guards, doctors in asylums. Nellie Bly also witnessed women be pulled by their hair underwater and strangled, kicked, and it was hopeless to complain to doctors because they would blame the women's imagination for the story. And then they would just get another beating for telling. Or nurses would drug patients for their own amusement. So this was the treatment they got at this... Torture. Yes, torture. Bly also wrote of how often she couldn't sleep. She would lay in bed imagining how horrible it would be if a fire broke out in the institution. She had noticed that every door in the building was locked separately. And the windows were all heavily barred, meaning that escape was close to impossible. A doctor had told her that in one building alone, there were some 300 women locked 10 to a room, and it was impossible to get out unless the doors were manually unlocked. After 10 days, Nellie Bly did get out of there, and her story was published in the paper. It was so explosive that the city began investigating the institution. However, by the time a grand jury panel went with Bly to visit the asylum a month later, it was too late. Inmates... I guess they're not inmates. Prison. Not prisoners. <laughs> wow. Try again. Uh, patients. There we go. Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. Patients who had talked to Bly had been transferred or released. The building had been scrubbed down. Patients had better food and water. And officials added nearly $1 million to the asylum's budget. So there was a cover up. But thankfully, something good came out of it, I guess. Maybe. And she went on to do more cool stunt girl journalism. She wrote about conditions in factories and even covered the Eastern Front during World War I. 
But again, back to psychiatric hospitals. Mental hospitals around the 1900s didn't just treat adults, they also admitted children. Willowbrook State School was one of the worst, if not the worst. Robert Kennedy referred to it as zoo-like or like a snake pit. The school was initially designed for 4,000 children, but by 1965, Willowbrook contained a population of 6,000 children. Children were left to wander around covered in their own urine and feces. However, much more troubling were the experiments that doctors carried out on the children they were supposed to be caring for. In an effort to learn more about the control and spread of hepatitis, they purposely infected 60 healthy children with it and observed them. And according to vaccinologist Maurice Hillman, the Willowbrook studies were the most unethical medical experiments ever performed on children in the United States because nothing good could have come from it. It could only hurt them. This school was obviously horrible. And because of what went on there, it led to the passage of, the fe- of a federal law, the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act of 1980. I don't want to end on that, so I'm going to tell you something nice. Sound good? Yeah, I appreciate that. They just gave 60 kids hepatitis? Yes. That's insane. What was their goal? To learn Observe. about the spread and, and... Well, you spread it to them. Yeah. You don't even want to know how they gave it to them. No. I don't. I'm not going to tell you. Oh, God. Yeah. So let's talk about something nice, shall we? Yeah. Sefin Coed Hospital in Wales was opened in 1932. It included a main hospital building and convalescent villas, a chapel, bakery, nurses' home, and eight cottages for staff who were required to live on site. Patients were admitted with a range of diagnoses, including psychosis, depression, and anxiety disorders. And like many hospitals of this era, it also housed people with long-term learning disabilities and elderly people with dementia. But what was different about Sefin was they devoted themselves to holistic treatments and occupational health. They had a hospital farm that was established in the grounds to provide open-air activity for patients in their recovery stages and to supply the kitchens. In the first year of operations, 40 patients and nine gardening staff cultivated 32 acres of house garden, 28 acres of ornamental gardens, and 26 acres of farmland. The hospital also kept sheep, horses, and chickens, which meant they had good and fresh food, and they had something to do, which was lovely. By the mid-1930s, Mental hospitals across England and Wales had cinemas, hosted dances, and sports clubs as a part of an effort to make entertainment and occupation a central part of recovery and rehabilitation. At the center of Sefin Coed Hospital was William Owen Hall, an ornate and formal entertainment space which could accommodate 600 patients for dining, musical performances, and dances, which also had its own projection room. Okay. This sounds like somewhere I might like to be. Yeah. Right? They have their own farm. Mm-hmm. They have space. They're hanging out. I literally thought this. I was like, right? why can't I go there? I don't know. This almost sounds like a fun cult. Yeah. They had movie screenings. By the 1970s, they had a motorized disco ball that hung in the center of the hall. They had an entertainment officer who was responsible for booking regular- an entertainment <laughs> Yeah, he was responsible for booking regular artists and bands to come in. They had weekly dances, 
concerts, Christmas pantomimes, and an annual New Year's Eve dance. They had a tramps ball in which the wards were transformed into a nightclub with a mock fish and chip bar serving newspaper-wrapped fish and chips to patients. Dude, and they turned it into a nightclub? Yes, th- <laughs> a nightclub that served fish and chips. And in the early years of operation, each ward had fresh flowers, their own pet canary, and a supply of books that was changed every fortnight. So if they, if they read the books, they'd get new ones. And they had a pet canary. And they had sheep. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I'd like to attend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was not unusual for mental hospitals during this era to have their own sports teams, educational departments, and art and music classes, with mental health continuing to receive more attention than ever before. Perhaps Seth and Coed history of care and community can help guide future treatments. I just have to imagine that their outcomes were way better. Uh, compared to the mental institutions everywhere else in the world at the time, yeah. Sefin was pretty great. I mean, this was happening at the exact same time as all the other crazy shit that I just told you about. Yeah. So, what? So, if you were thinking about being a mental hospital patient in the early 1900s, I'd suggest doing it in Wales. Just, you know, keep that in the back of your mind. <laughs> you know? You might need it. In case you need it, go to Seffen. And I was when I was watching a video about it, they were interviewing staff members and the people that were talking, they sounded lovely. Like they sounded so nice. And they were like, oh yeah, I've been working here for 43 years. It's a good accent. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Keep working. You yeah. Know? They sounded happy. I was like, um, yeah, can I go? Yeah, dude, they're, <laughs> they're turning their hospital into a nightclub as their job. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. They have an entertainment officer who books bands and like artists to come in all the time yeah i want to go to a fish and chips nightclub what the hell for real (laughs) is this is this wrong of me to say i mean i I don't know i shouldn't underplay the fact that it's a psychiatric hospital well you know it's not but also they sound like they got some really sick things going on they got some things right i shouldn't say sick things (laughs) (laughs) i didn't mean it that way you know what i mean it they they have sick dude they have yeah like sick you know like ah cool they've got cool things going on i like to have fun we have fun what if we had fun yeah anyway thankfully today's psychiatric hospitals are quite different from the old ones and may is mental health awareness month so take care of yourself because being mentally healthy is hot yeah and that's my story (laughs) (laughs) did you like that (laughs) yeah what's your favorite thing about him he's mentally healthy so hot yeah that's important i mean yeah mental health is hot you gotta you gotta take care of your brain sans lobotomy oh my god don't do that don't let anyone lobotomize you please you know what i wonder I wonder how many times this episode we said crazy or insane. Just as a reflex. Yes. It's just such a normal... Part of the lingo. Yeah, it's just such a normal thing for me to say. Like, isn't that crazy? Isn't that insane? I don't mean to. It's just in my bones, you know? Yeah. But if we can get a crazy counter, let me know. (laughs) Ding! Ding! Yeah. Ding! Actually, maybe don't let me know. It might hurt my feelings. (laughs) I know. (laughs) What do I say all the time? 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You predictable fuck. <laughs> God. Do you have any uh, anything to say? Any any uh, thoughts? Yeah, this was really a surprising history. Isn't it? I yeah, I didn't know, and I was constantly surprised by how bad it was and how wild some of the theories were for treating the illnesses and that shock therapy is still used today and further that it works. Yeah. Because, yeah, it just sounds like another crazy theory, but it helps people. It so does. So it's not. Yeah. You know? Yeah, one of the um, links that I was looking at about, like, how it's used today was University of Michigan's medicine. Oh, shout out. Yeah, which I, I thought was funny. I was like, oh, <laughs> cool. That's pretty um, cool. Yeah. Just... Proud alums here. <laughs> yes, right. Um, it's a great hospital. Um, anyway... Yeah, this was one topic that I could not stop researching. I could not stop diving deeper. I just kept going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And it just kept blowing my mind. As I was researching, I just wanted to turn to you and be like, you are not going to believe what I just read. But I knew you were going to join me on this episode. So I, I refrained. You held it in. I did. But yeah, it's just like, holy shit. The things that people had to go through yeah is horrifying i mean truly torture they they just like did shit to people yeah they just experimented on people truly like true experiments and like they just treated people like they weren't human because they were labeled as insane and most of the times actually weren't well even if they were which like insane is like not even a correct terminology like you know what i mean though yeah no i know what you're saying like it's just, it's never okay in any capacity to do that to any human. But like, that's just, like, holy shit. I can't believe that there were people who thought that it was okay to do that to another person just because they had some kind of mental illness. Yeah, I think the uh, do no harm came later. I guess it's like, in their minds, it was like the for science of it all. They were like, we're learning. We're going to make them better. Yeah, I mean, that's how most things are. People think they're doing the right thing. Yeah, but also there were definitely people out there who, you know there were people out there who took advantage of that shit. If you wanted to abuse people, this was the place to go. Yeah. I mean, think about how many, I don't know, horror movies or TV shows or whatever about the psychotic, abusive- Yeah, like psychiatric wards in the 70s. Yeah. Abusive like doctors and- yeah. Or like the the doctors who are like addicted to drugs themselves and they're like taking the drugs and then like experimenting on people. I mean, I'm sure that's based in truth somewhere. I'm sure it wasn't completely fabricated. Have you heard of MK Ultra? Yeah, that's a whole that's separate thing. A whole. Have, we haven't done a story on it, right? No. Maybe that's a good one. But yeah. that story's also. Isn't that like the CIA or the FBI? Like yeah, testing like, people. Yeah, a government agency was dosing people with LSD and then just kind of seeing what would happen. And oh, they let's were absolutely trying to, tell that story. Yeah, trying to break them and see, just kind of see what happens. Oh, yeah, stay and tuned, everyone. We'll tell that story. It's, it's just insane. It's just unthinkable. Yeah. That would happen, mm-hmm. but yet it has. Yeah. So, I don't know, man. Yeah. History's crazy. That's... For sure. History is surprising. <laughs> I need to stop. Good catch. I really need to stop. Good catch. Hey, we've it's been 
almost three years of doing this, if we had a crazy counter for the entire podcast, it'd be shocking. So listen. (laughs) If I had a dollar. If I had a dollar for every time I said crazy, I'd be a millionaire. I hope (laughs) not. I would be employed as a podcaster. (laughs) But anyway, that's that on that, I guess. Do you want to tell me your good thing? No, you go first. Okay. My good thing is that I chopped my hair off. You did, and And it looks great. Thank you. And by chopped it off, I mean I gave myself um, a haircut in our bathroom um, very impulsively and a little bit chaotically. And I just, I just cut it to my shoulders and it, but it, it turned out pretty okay. Yeah. And what's yours? Oh, my good thing is that we went to a restaurant on Sunday and had a lovely dinner. It was great food. We had a good time. It was. But also we lied about it being our anniversary <laughs> and we got free dessert. You can't. And I thought that's my good thing is that we told a lie to was, get free things. It was in our defense, it was a bit of a white lie. It's a white lie. It, because, like, we technically celebrated our five-year anniversary recently. It was in the past month. It was a month ago. It was a month ago now, <laughs> but it was very recently in the grand scheme of things. Right. If and you think so, about five years if you think uh, about as it, a timeline. Yeah, that's, that's not that long ago. So when the server asked, are you celebrating anything? We're going to say... We're, we were technically continuing to celebrate it. Yeah, we're celebrating. We're having a good time. So we said, yes, we're celebrating. And then they, they say, what? And we're going to say our five-year anniversary because that sounds impressive. So we did. And then they gave us free donuts. And yep. they were lovely. And we're going to continue celebrating. We may or may not do that. So the moral of the story is if it doesn't matter, lie to get free stuff. That's no. Hey, it was fun. It was fun. And I didn't even stutter. I didn't even pause. I just did it. And I didn't even set out to do it. Okay, let's defend me for a second. Mm -hmm. I didn't set out to to do this. No. The waiter asked us, are you celebrating anything? Yeah. And I just saw an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're not going to, we're not, we're not criminals. Hey. Right. Hey, we're not bad people. We're not. We're not bad people. We don't, we don't do this all the time, but. But we're going to. No. (laughs) (laughs) But the opportunity showed itself and we seized the day is all we're saying and we got free donuts and we, we love that some dms we we you carved I mean? a dm and we got some free donuts and we love that they were good they were anyways if you guys would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about check us out on instagram at not today underscore podcast if you would like to check out the bonus episode that came out today check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash not today podcast If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or a near-death experience that you would like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listener's episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast. The T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.